Welcome to the Caroline Gleick Show, where we talk about adventure and activism and how sports can change the world. How can we use our privilege as outdoors people to protect the environment and elevate Indigenous voices? On today's episode, I talked to Natives Outdoors Ambassador Connor Ryan, aka Sacred Stoke, a Lakota skier, cyclist, and outdoors person. We chat about his background as a skier, his upcoming bike ride across the West Coast, and how we can call in the outdoor industry and skiers to do better as environmental and social justice activists. Connor, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. I wanted to check in with you right now and see how you're doing because I know a lot of my BIPOC, my Black and Indigenous friends have, it's a tough time right now. And so I want to just see how you're doing, how you're handling, um, if you feel like talking about it, um, because it's it's really, I think a lot of us are really struggling right now. Yeah, it's been an interesting time, Uh, particularly, I don't know, yesterday was just a hard, hard day for me. You know, it's like, it's interesting how quickly the constant input uh, of social media can go from like informing to overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And yesterday was definitely one of those days for me where I was like, you know what, like, all this just feels like too much you know yeah. and and it was a good day to like just take a step away from that um you know and set everything down for a minute and just like watch a movie hang out with the family yeah. go on a hike and kind of just remember like you know while while there is so much going on i think the collective strength of our of our movements uh they they come from you know strong individuals and you gotta you gotta lean into the things that that make you want to show up every day for the fight. Um, and, and you know, an important part of that is is rest and giving yourself a break from it because it's it's easy to be on information overload and it's easy to fall into the hole of thinking like I have to stay up to the minute, you know, on, on every detail of these issues. Um, when in reality, like we're we're in such a long long struggle and a long fight you know that that realistically like the the minute to minute details aren't as important as staying connected to that that overall strategy of what this is about yeah yeah absolutely i really um read what you said about inner strength really resonated with me because i think we've all heard the saying like it's about turning this moment into a movement but in order to do that, like I think self-care and rest, all of those things are so important. And it's really easy to just like be so reactive and be like, I gotta get a social media post out. Like I have to, I have to always be like, you know, lending my voice to this conversation or doing all these things. And and um and also I wanna acknowledge like that I have a privilege as a white person where like I don't I, I don't I feel it in my heart, but it's not the same pain and so i want to hold space for for black and indigenous people and people of color right now because it is it's just it's a it's a horrible pain and it's a horrible time and i'm it's it's mind i mean it's not mind-boggling but this whole thing with jacob blake this week it's like oh i wish the police like how have they not just stopped killing black people by now like i would i would think we all want to see change happen and and yeah it's hard to stay resilient so Anyway, I appreciate you speaking to that. And yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think like, I think one of the most difficult things is like, really that feeling of like, continuation um, over so much time that that makes it difficult when you when you're more connected to like the historical side of the traumas. And you're using that to inform your fight moving forward. You know, like, you never know how, like, the, you know, passage you read in a book about history is going to be coming alive today. Mm. And and I think sometimes that's the most exhausting part of it. And, like, you know, it's difficult because, like, yeah, it it is a terrible time on one sense. And on another sense, like, it's, it's a beautiful time. And that that growing awareness is is kind of like cyclical and i think it's important to like you know stay rooted in, in in that power that lies in the patterns and in studying that and one of the most 
important things I think I saw today amidst all of that was uh, a political cartoon from the 1960s that was uh, knocking Dr. King for some of the riots that were happening in the wake of, of things that he'd, he'd said and ways that he'd inspired people. And I think like th that's such an important thing is because now people want to, you know, come back afterwards and look at things like what Dr. King has said and been like, Oh, well he spoke for peace. So y'all shouldn't be rioting. But like in real, in reality, like they were just as quick to tie him to the, to the outrage and the, you know, upset moments in all of this back then. And I, I think like, it's important to remember, like, really, if you're speaking against the movement from outside of it and don't understand it, you know, like, y you don't really have any context. And I think that's, that's the most important thing for people to do right now is, like, find that space to listen. And if you're a good listener, encourage good listening more than anything else, you know? Yeah, so I think that listening part is really important. And I also appreciate and recognize what you said about like not criticizing the movement from the outside. Like I feel like so many people who are really critical about the marches and everything going on are people who haven't actually been like boots on the ground. And for me going to one, like I haven't been going to a ton of, of marches because of COVID and I would like to go to more, but um, you know, they're super peaceful and yeah like the vast majority of it is is peaceful and also it isn't really our place to tell people how to protest as white people so thank you for speaking to all that to get started um yeah for sure i've been really enjoying seeing your bike rides too lately mm -hmm. um do you want to tell us about the the bike break the bicycle yeah for sure so i've been participating for the last two months or so in a break the bicycle in, in preparation for the large break the bicycle ride, um, which is like an event separate of the movement, um, but also connected to it. Um, but basically what the goal of this movement has been for the last couple months is to start conversations, uh, particularly for black and indigenous men about our mental health um, and, and the means for doing that is by getting out and riding uh, a minimum of seven miles, but any multiple of seven miles uh, on your bicycle each day, or you know as many days a week as you can. And the goal there on, on is to kind of build a community of people in the outdoors who are who are doing this. Um, and I think the one of the most important things for me about it is that that continual act of like feeling like you're a part of something and getting outside are, are two of the biggest steps for me in, in making sure that my mental health is where it needs to be. Um, I always just feel better when I have, you know, buy into some collective goal. And then at the same time, I think particularly for black and indigenous men, it's really important for us to be outside. That's, that's a part of our, our cultures and our roots is to, to be out there as much as we can and be you know, in the sunshine, in the fresh air, all of that, I think it gives you a, a little bit more perspective than what you find from inside of four walls. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been following your social media with it. And you've been doing some really long bike rides. And Good how's, night. yeah, how's that been going? It's been going really well. It's, you know, it's kind of been like a journey for me of figuring out like, how it is that I can make that work. Uh, when it first started, I only had a, a mountain bike and i didn't really have good access to go to the mountains and ride so i'd be doing most of my riding at a local <clears throat> like downhill course and i'd just ride laps yeah on the downhill jump in and i quickly figured out like i was gonna beat myself up doing that because uh, i took a couple crashes and i was beating the bike up because once you get good at that you just start riding the black line Mm -hmm. over and over and then you're just like sending it and I was I was just pounding my bike and pounding my body and I was like okay you know the the larger ride that we're preparing for uh next month uh down the down the whole west coast is uh road riding so I was like you know I don't think this is really preparing me for for what I'm gonna see in this larger you know thousand plus mile ride anyway um so luckily I was able to uh find some support within the outdoor industry to, to help me get moved over to being on a gravel bike. 
And that has been a serious game changer for me. Uh, I was lucky to find some support from uh, the folks down at Rodeo Labs in Denver who were uh, close by to me here. And they they got me on one of their demo bikes and I've been training and preparing to do this ride on, on, on one of their bikes. And that's just really been a whole exciting new chapter for me. Like I've been riding 30, 40, 50 miles a day, not just because I need to prepare, but because it's been such a blast and it's been a really cool way for me to kind of like work out my curiosity and creativity and exploring and recreating that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I get a lot of that in backcountry skiing, that, that feeling of like, ooh, like what's just beyond this next little bend? What's up there? You know, like you see potential in places. And so learning to see that in, in a new sport that's kind of got multiple mediums because I've been riding it on the road, I've been riding it on the gravel, and then I've been getting onto the single track as well. And so learning how to get around my environment where I'm at and – uh connect those kind of different styles of riding and get better at little parts of each of it has been a really cool, uh, you know, way to get to know my myself and my limits a little bit better. And it's been really fun. That's so rad. Yeah. A gravel bike sounds perfect for what you're trying to do. I got one a couple of years ago and it's been such a fun way to be able to recreate which is a weird word for what we do. Like, I always don't, like, it's been a fun way for me just to go straight out of my garage and go for an adventure. And, you know, you can start on the road and get warmed up. And then I always like to go to, like, the single track and try try navigating some smooth single track. And then you can really take it, like, where the road ends and where the asphalt ends and on onto the gravel. And so that's rad. That's it's super fun. Um, So I'd like to talk more about your ride at the end, but I was curious if you could just tell me a little bit more about yourself and where you live and just a little bit of background, how you got into the outdoors and doing what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So um, I live in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, I've grown up in this area most of my life. Um, I I guess I should say I technically live in in Lafayette, which is outside of Boulder. Um, It's an interesting thing. uh, Since uh, I was born at Boulder Community, Community hospital, but I've never really lived in the town of Boulder proper uh, because of housing there is quite an interesting and an expensive situation. Um, so I, I've kind of been like nomadic all along the front range, and that's allowed me to get into the outdoors in a number of different ways. Um, when I was a kid, I would go up to the the big Thompson Canyon. Mm-hmm. and my family had like a a, a little spot up there. And that was kind of like my first foray into like the outdoors as you would kind of typically think of it. Uh, But I didn't really do any particular sports or anything back then. It was mostly just like my parents, you know, just like turning me loose um, out to just, you know, like waste the day. Yeah. And so it'd just be, you know, some, some combination of hiking and bouldering and exploring. And that, that was usually like how I really got, got, comfortable outside um yeah was in that kind of thing and uh i skied a little bit as a kid um and just enough to like really pique my interest but then uh as as time progressed on i think by the time i was in about fifth grade uh my family couldn't afford to do it anymore um and so i kind of had a gap uh during my middle school and high school years where most of my outdoor adventures were in the form of of just running i was on the cross country and the track team oh cool Um, yeah so i've always been in it in in a kind of auxiliary ways and then uh once i was about 21 i started started skiing pretty regularly and that that was a, a passion that like couldn't not be pursued you know and so that kind of took over my life since then and that's what's led me to here. Well, not cool that your parent, that your your family, like that skiing became too expensive. Uh, like that's something that like I feel is a huge problem in snow sports. But it yeah. is really cool that you were able to get into cross country because that's probably set you up really well now for what you're doing with backcountry skiing and with gravel biking. Because like I grew up like skiing a little bit with my family, but I always wanted to be a runner. And I didn't really do like sports that consistently through high school and stuff. And I'm a little jealous sometimes of people who have that great like cardio endurance base from cross country running. Like it translates so well into fast uphill skiing. So in a way it set you up, but 
yeah, I wish skiing, it was, I wish that it, we could make, f- figure out more ways to make it more accessible to grow the sport, you know, to set us up for future for the next generation. Totally, totally. Yeah. I, I'm always thinking, you know, there's so much untapped potential, you know, in snow sports athletes that because of all the barriers to getting into it. And uh, I think looking forward to, you know, finding ways to kind of augment that and adjust the system so that everybody can get a shot and we can yeah. see everybody's potential. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota and so I feel like, I just feel like it's gotten a, like skins. It was, I, I mean, I come from a, a relatively privileged family, but I still always had hand-me-down skis from my brothers or like used skis. And like, I would ski in my brother in like a starter jacket, you know, cause I thought that was, that was just the jacket I, I wore. And so I skied in it and like, I didn't have goggles and, I wasn't like getting new gear every year. Like my family was doing okay, but still it's just the amount of wealth you need to be able to buy all your kids new ski gear and passes every, unless it's crazy. So it's nuts. Yeah. I'd love to brainstorm like more ways that we could work to make snow sports like more accessible because yeah, it's crazy. Maybe we can come back to that, but I wanted to ask you also to speak about your mixed heritage and your background because you're, indigenous you're lakota and irish Mm -hmm. yeah so my mom's lakota uh and my dad is irish and um you know i it's for me like i i identify much more as an indigenous person i identify as lakota um and and for me the reason being is like my my uh you know ancestors lived where i'm at and then primarily lived you know about 200 miles north of where i live and so for me like those roots are right there um ireland is very far away i've never met anybody in the area who (laughs) speaks gaelic you know or anything like that but um when i was a young man like i had the opportunity to uh reconnect with my culture in more ways and and that was something that just made sense to me and was kind of a gravity that I couldn't escape. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but, uh, primarily a big part of it too, is like my mom's been my biggest role model in my life. Um, and <clears throat> she's kind of always like been my example of like how you can embody being indigenous without like necessarily having like deep cultural ties, which I think is like a really important thing, um, for urban natives in particular, Uh, who you know didn't grow up on the reservation is like we have to reclaim that that meaning of what it means to 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 be ourselves and she's always been an awesome example of that to me uh and she for the most part raised me you know as as a single mom at first my dad wasn't a big part of my life so it kind of just made sense for me to continue to to gravitate towards those you know role models who were actually there for me in my life um yeah, and so it's, it's kind of been a, a collective journey between the, the two of us of kind of uh, reclaiming that that heritage and getting cl- plugged back in with our culture and our communities and stuff like that. And, you know, it's it's been a beautiful form of work that's definitely brought me a lot closer to the, to the land in my outdoor pursuits um, at the same time as being something that's been, uh, you know, personally and spiritually fulfilling for me. Yeah, yeah. I think when you write about your heritage with, um, you know, your identity as a Lakota indigenous person, um, I I love your writing around that on Instagram. And you're definitely one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram because the way you connect it back to like Mother Earth and your reverence and I don't know, the spirituality and that heart you bring to the outdoors, I think that's just, it comes through in your photos and your writing and it makes it really fun to follow your adventures. So thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's definitely one of my my goals to strive to do that. And, you know, I often speak to the fact that like I have a foot in both worlds. And so for me, like I know what it's like to like be in the white world of skiing. And because of that, like, I know there's things that like a lot of skiers feel about the land a lot of people who are climbers runners bikers all that they feel these things about the land and there's not a, a cultural context to understand that through because american western capitalist culture doesn't doesn't give you like literally even the words 
to talk about the land in the same way. And so then through learning Lakota language and through learning my traditional, you know, cultural practices, like it's all about the land and it's all about reverence for that. And the line between like what's, you know, sacred for the fact of being like mysterious and powerful and what's sacred for like being vital to life, like it is almost indistinguishable. And I think like, that's a lesson that like we we haven't integrated yet overall as a culture in skiing but i feel like it's always right underneath the surface that like there's something magical that brings you to life that you feel when that huge snowstorm falls and blankets the hills and you wake up in the morning and it's like there and there's there's something palpable like even if you're not a skier there's like something clearly magical about that and so i think like coming from a culture where we understand like yeah like you feel that way because like that's water is life like with the snow falls on the mountains like that that's a promise that the food is going to grow for you to eat this spring like that that connection of what's really happening there is like it's so much deeper than we've had you know terms to really understand yet but it's something we all feel and so for me it's really just like an awesome opportunity to get to be a bridge between these these worlds that are so obviously connected but just haven't been tied together yet wow you just vocalized that so well like the excitement of a powder day and like that feeling of life it gives you and you know what you just reminded me of how you're speaking to your childhood being a free-range kid and and just being outside and like learning how to be outdoors. And I feel like the Western capitalist culture, it creates like these barriers where we think we need all these gears and all this, all this planning and this like incredible anxiety about like, I don't have the right stuff. Like, but really like to get outside, it's remembering who we are as humans and you don't need that much stuff to do it. I mean, of course I want people to be prepared and to know what they're getting into. And if you're going to go into avalanche terrain, like take your class. But on the other hand, like, like get outside and and like reconnect with that childhood feeling like to me like the reason I've I think per- pursued the career that I have is because it makes me feel like a kid like it makes me so happy and I just can't imagine doing anything else like sitting in an office doing a nine to five like it gives me horrible anxiety like there's no way I could do it I'm not like my body's not adapted for that kind of life and so yeah it's super cool the way you just vocalize that whole connection that's incredible yeah, yeah. well I, th- I think that stuff's so essential and I think like that that constant drive to get outside like that i think it's just us remembering like our our culture tends to like separate ourselves from nature but in reality like we are nature like we're a biological process the same way that like these trees and these animals and these you know all these other relatives out there are biological process dependent on all the same water and air as us and i think like that that drive to get outside is like fundamental to being alive yeah, yeah. And I mean, the outdoor industry, like, it makes it so we feel like we have to get so rad all the time. And that's created a lot of struggle for me when I've had periods of injury or like times when I can't train, like when I can't be out like sending the gnar or like running up a mountain super fast or whatever it is. And I think something that's just helped me um, like with those, I, I guess what I'd want to tell other people is like, it's okay if you're not getting super rad, like just go sit outside or Seriously. like read a book outside or draw a picture. Like there's so many different ways and it doesn't have to look like what the outdoor industry shows. Like it can look however you want. Yeah, totally. I mean, my mom and I just were talking about that the other day Then she was like, well, this is my, this is my outdoor activity. And, you know, and she was just sitting on the porch and just hanging out there all afternoon. Her friend comes over, they talk on the porch. She's got to call another friend, does that from the porch. And I think like encouraging people to like lean into that side of the outdoors of being outside is like, that's, that's good for us. We need, we need that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't for, you know, breezes and rain and whatnot, I'd probably go, you know, do this do this podcast with you from the porch because yeah. for me, that's, that's my favorite place to be. I know, I know. This is like the w- couple hours a day I have to sit inside. But luckily, I got my workout in this morning. I went for a walk with a friend and having that time on the trails, like, I don't know. I've been struggling with the whole pandemic and it's like constant anxiety and like with the feeling that the whole Western, that our whole country is like 
crumbling. <laughs> I've been struggling. And so having that, that getting like into a daily rhythm where I find the right amount of activity I can do day after day rather than just like crushing myself. That's been really crucial to my success to su- successfully like navigating these times. Yeah. I mean, it's crucial to the, to the nervous system, you know, when we're looking at the blue light from the screens and like everything, all these stories that we're reading is like, uh, life and death you know what i mean whole forests are burning people's lives are a threat due to the you know social situations in our world and like that puts you all in that like uh sympathetic nervous system fight or flight response all the time and you know your breathing gets shorter your just everything about you was on like a different sort of alert but you go outside and you start taking those slower breaths you hear all that sounds and you know, of actual nature and like that puts you in that parasympathetic mode again. And you're just like, you're good to go. Your body feels like literally like you're going to live. Like when you see a crackling fire, when you like hear a trickling stream, like all that biologically to your body is telling you like, this is the promise of life. Like you're going to be okay. And I think like we got to stay as connected to that as we can, whether we're sending it or not, like that, that sending it is optional, but like yeah. being outside is is fundamental yeah what are other things you think we could do in communities to make access to the outdoors more normal and more i don't know more inclusive and more reasonable yeah i mean i think one of the most simple things like is like we got to start with like our kids and the idea of like how much time you're supposed to be outside and i think part of it is like a generational shift right now that's kind of going the wrong way which is like when i was a kid uh you know they just turn you loose in the neighborhood like come home when it's time for dinner you know and i think like we've we've kind of gotten uh i actually listened to an npr podcast about this but we, we've kind of built this like false idea that like strangers are to be feared and like your kids won't be safe out in the world and i think like what it does is it creates kids who can't you know be decision makers the same ways that we had to be when we were kids. And I think like that's something that needs to return and be even stronger than when we were kids. I mean, there's a time when like you never brought your kids inside, like you lived your whole life outside. So this, this idea that there's something to be feared that the kids got to come in cause, cause it's raining or it's hot or it's like, whatever, like man, it was a hundred degrees. And I like look forward to that. And I'd be drinking from a garden hose and some Crocs, like, out building bike jumps all day (laughs) and like i think like that that spirit is really good and it's got to be encouraged and i think one of the simplest ways to do that is just actually like having that be a part of how kids are raised regardless of who their their parents are you've got to have that those means be be presented to kids through the educational system as well um there's got to be you know community gardens at the schools of of every sort of section of kids that's something i notice in boulder is like all these schools have community gardens and it's not it's not the same way if you go down into the into the city and i think like just making those sort of things more fundamental and realizing like no no activity you know belongs to people of any color and that that's something at, at natives outdoors uh, the brand that i work for you know like that's something that we often find our Ourselves coming up against is like we're encouraging other native people to get outside but then there's a perception that exists that like oh well like mountain biking or climbing or skiing like that's for white people and it's like mm, like we we got to break that down and sometimes the biggest way to break that down is just for us to also appear yeah in in the marketing for these things is like for sure you've never seen a native american skier or mountain biker on a advertisement yet and like why there's all the skiing you know happens on our land on this continent so it's like that that sort of thing is like it's all collective and systemic and we have to like all choose it for one another if that makes sense like we need the help of like white allies to choose for us to bring us into participation and at the same time we have to choose for ourselves to realize like okay like i can do anything but that perception of i can do anything definitely has a lot to do with with what images you yeah. know you see um, absolutely yeah you know it, it was i think it's easy for for kids to get into sports where they already see people like themselves doing it that was a big thing for me when I ran track and cross country, like I always took a lot of pride in the idea that uh, 
the the only American who's won a gold medal in a long distance running event at the Olympics is the Lakota by the name of uh, Billy Mills. That's awesome. And so and he won the 10,000 meters at the Tokyo Olympics. And uh, I just always took a lot of pride in that. And that, so to me, I was like, well, I know I can run then. And so I think it just, it takes that existing again in new ways in the future. Well, you're being that person now for kids in snow sports. So it's, it's been cool to see. And like, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about where things are going. And yeah, I can't wait for all these kids to see like a big poster of you or you in a ski film or yeah. I think. Yeah, we're getting there. And I think it's, you know, it's like, there's, you know, maybe there's one of me in this generation in my sport and, you know, one person in a few other sports. And it starts with that. But I think like where we where we really need to be at is like that place where there's there's 10 of me. Absolutely. You know, like, and yeah. I, I think I think that's my job is to hopefully lay some of the foundation for that to be possible. Yeah, um, I wanted to see, I can pull this up too for you. I, I was going to see if you could read me this part you wrote on Instagram, one of your captions about the role that professional skiers. I think I have it right here. Yeah. Yeah, I loved this. Yeah, so this is from the post I made uh, a couple weeks ago that was, uh, I'm really exceptionally stoked with generally how it was received. I think like uh, there's probably somebody who read it and didn't like it, but Essentially, uh, what I said was this, is uh, ready for the smoke? Professional skiers are boring. Shreddits and stoke films are all the same. Skiers who don't fight for the environment they profit off of don't deserve sponsors. I love skiing, but I'm not entertained by many of the biggest names in the sport. They present a world of insularity and ego glorification. I don't look up to skiers who aren't, who aren't standing in defense of BIPOC's place on the mountain or in defense of the mountain itself. I once thought they kept quiet to keep sponsors happy, but now that I have support from brands, I realize it's more likely that they're avoiding personal, personal accountability for their actions. The privilege associated with skiing should not be paramount to the activity that connects you to nature. The commodification of our mountains by people who call themselves skiers but don't use their resources in defense of the climate that makes our sport possible and equality within our sport is unacceptable. Their mentality is as extractive and damaging to our environment as strip mining and clear cutting. And I will link to the entire quote. You can follow Connor on his Instagram at Sacred Stoke, and I would highly recommend following him and reading the entire caption. But um, it's, I just, I loved the, I loved so many parts about this. And it's a huge problem in skiing that I've seen in snow sports is that like skiers aren't even aware of like, there's so many basic things like white privilege, white fragility. Like there's a lot of male fragility that I've seen as a woman and the, the like extractive, I guess like the way that they see nature as something to like conquer and call it like, I don't know, even just the kind of violent terms that we have about like shredding, slaying, like I killed it, you know, I Bag killed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like so much of it is so violent and rooted in like colonization. And so I love that you brought this into this um, post and especially tied it directly to snow sports. So I've been really on my own journey as an environmental activist, and I've been really listening and learning how vital it is for us to support and amplify indigenous leadership and indigenous voices in the snow sports and outdoor and the environmental communities. And so I was wondering if you could speak more to why indigenous, we should all be like having indigenous leadership within all of these different realms. I think the reason why we need, uh, indigenous leadership in the outdoor industry and outside of that, even in land management and, you know, really every category is because we have an understanding of how to do this. Um, the way that we experience the land now as people who are excited about recreation, as people who love the wilderness, the outdoors, whatever, all of that and the way that that happens on this continent right now is because of thousands of years of indigenous decision-making. So when we look at places like Yosemite, like John Muir first came to Yosemite and thought he was seeing this like vast, pristine wilderness. And in reality, what 
he was seeing was a curated, you know, stewarded Garden of Eden. And the lack of practices that, that created places like Yosemite, not to say that they created the land, but to say that they nurtured the forest into being exactly what it was. And now the issues that we see with wildfires in California in particular are because everywhere in California, there was a tribe with a fire practice who understood if you take care of the forest in this way, it's going to be better for the animals. So you're going to have more to hunt. It's going to be better for the trees. So there's going to be more nuts to eat. Like, and it was the same for us out on the plains as Lakota people. Like we would start fires and massive swaths of the prairie in order to move the bison into other places. Right. And then when this happened, it would create this like super rich section of prairie where like now there's all this ash there that's going to get worked back in by the buffalo the next time they come through because the hooves of the buffalo are perfect for tilling up the prairie like we have an understanding of how to do these things and the way that we currently value western science over traditional ecological knowledge is upholding white supremacy so it's to say like and i mean this in the in the most like you know the 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 I mean this in a really good way, but essentially like white people aren't doing a great job of taking care of our planet right now. And it's unfortunate, but it's like capitalism and consumerism, the way that it's happening is why we have climate change is why we have forests being clear cut is why we have entire mountains being torn out to strip mine. Like, so I think we, we've reached a point where it's like, yeah, we have global needs that, you know, need to be met from the, from the bounty of the land. But the way that we do that needs to incorporate the reciprocity that's been a part of indigenous traditions for thousands of years. And there's no holistic way to implement that except for with our leadership. You just said that so well. And I also want to say you never need to sugarcoat anything for my comfort. Like I know other <laughs> white people. Like I've done I've done a lot of work on this yeah, to be yeah. like okay <laughs> with discomfort, but like yeah. you do not need to sugarcoat or water down your message for me or for the listeners of this podcast. Like I want you to say it as it is. Yeah. yeah. Well that's, um, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. You should always like, yeah, share your truth and yeah, I mean, I do sugarcoat my language sometimes for my Instagram audience for the white male fragility there. <laughs> but I'm trying to get better at not doing that because it's other people's, you know, are like indigenous lives are more important than white people's comfort. So Absolutely, yeah. We kind of spoke a little bit about this earlier, but how can white people be better allies? And I know this is a very cliche question. You're probably sick of hearing about it. You're probably sick of answering it. So if it's too cliche, like you don't have to. But I think a lot of people really, really want to do more to help. And they want to like support and implement these ideas that you're speaking of. But they're like, you know, taking, they're, they're trying to figure out how to do it. Yeah, for sure. I, if you're okay with using me using the same anecdote to the yeah. same question, then I think we're good. But th this is the anecdote that I always give when it comes to this, which is uh, I had a good friend when I was skiing about five seasons ago or so. And um, I'd never skied in the backcountry, and I kind of always viewed that as a thing that would really only be done by like older white men who lived in the mountains for a long time so me as somebody who lived in town below the mountains like I, I just saw that as kind of like off limits it was too hard it was something i would never do and i had a friend who encouraged me to to think of it otherwise and the biggest thing that he did to to empower me in that was he sold me a pair of his uh his marker duke bindings which if you know what those are they're like the heaviest clunkiest thing you could possibly drag into the backcountry um but at the time that was like, you know, that was before the Solomon shift and it would have been way too much of a commitment for me to go to a full pin binding at the time. That's why I say that. Um, I toured on them for many years and my hip flexors are still angry. <laughs> Get the job done, but yeah, it hurts. Yeah, doing like a four. You gotta really want the power. I did like a 4,000 vert day on them one time and like I've never been, I did two back-to-back -back hut trips in BC on those bindings and I did a backcountry ski trip in Japan and I appreciate my pin bindings every day now. <laughs> anyway, keep going, keep going. I love the story. Yeah, for yeah. real, for real. So he sold me a pair of Marker Dukes for, I believe, about $20. Mm -hmm. 
which is like you know that's a, that's a five six hundred dollar piece of equipment at the time and he used them for one season and sold me his bindings for twenty dollars and uh you know helped me get a beacon shovel all that and took me out and i think like that literally changed my life like now i am professionally backcountry skiing like and so i would say like that's really maybe the biggest thing is to like take your secondhand gear off craigslist if you can afford to do that and put it in the hands of someone else and you know maybe where we need to work on some collective gear libraries and things like that that we can do to make that happen in a, in a more collective way if you don't know the exact person who needs it maybe we come up with a gear library in salt lake and one in denver and one in you know wherever but like that idea that like your secondhand gear is something you know that that's useless that should just be turned into one fourth of the money that it once was worth is a silly idea because instead it can be something life-changing for someone else and so i i think that's that's really the biggest thing i think individuals can do there's a lot of work that needs to come from brands um and i think that's a whole other discussion but you know i think if Things like Protect Our Winners have shown us anything. It's like the greatest collective power is in all of us acting and then forcing the rest of the, you know, industry to come along with us. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing is like think of your secondhand gear not as some spare change but as some big potential. And th that'll that'll create a big shift. That's so incredible because like, you know, you said like you thought it was the sport for old men. And I also feel like things I felt as a white woman are obviously nothing at all comparable to like, it's not about comparing like access, but I'm, I also have just not felt very included in the backcountry community since I started. Like there are a lot of people who are like telling me like you're Gumby, like you don't belong. And, and in like in very um, concrete ways and like other more subversive ways, like it was made very clear to me that like I'm not a part of this community. And so I think what you just spoke to is really powerful and it just shows like, think about who you're out there with and what do they look like? And so I think someone else has told me this before, but like, is there a way you can invite someone in and that act of invitation and that act of holding space and holding your gear and giving it, you know, to others and helping them because it's so freaking hard to get into these sports if you don't have that person. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, for me, like for me to get into skiing for the first time, uh, I mean, it essentially required me to save for like an entire year. You know what I mean? And that, that was like all I did that year was save so I could ski. And it happened to be at a time when I was like very fortunate to be able to even make that happen. There's a lot of other years in my life like where there would have been no amount of saving I could have done that would have turned me into a skier, you know? And I think like people just need to have an awareness of that. Like when it comes to like, white privilege and exclusivity within these communities like usually it's all coming from like one particular direction and if we don't want that to be our community then like the easiest thing for us to do is just be louder like how loud can you be with your kindness how loud can you be with your generosity and like you know i, I find that that's like a silencing factor is for like the whole culture of things to shift i mean we've seen that in our country in the past few months in an incredible way and i like keep it up apply it everywhere apply it to the back country apply it to the resort like nobody is a jerry anymore nobody is a, a gaper anymore other than the guy who's pointing out the flaws of others who are on the hill like that's what's lame like skiing and in sunglasses and whatever pair of pants like you could use to make happen like guess what that was me one time i can remember being made fun of on the ski lift in a pair of jeans and a pair of sunglasses that i bought for ten dollars on the way up there like i remember that day and whoever made that joke at my expense now like shout out to you because i can out ski you <laughs> yeah right you know in a major way now and i think like the only the only thing that really serves to do in the long run is make yourself look foolish if you're the one speaking down on others so yeah uh, i think that's the shift is here and the culture is in our hands collectively i was gonna go back now to the allyship question and about voting because right now there's a lot of efforts going on um you know like foreign intervention russian intervention to divide us as americans and 
you and I had this really powerful exchange on Instagram about voting where I had just read all these people who were saying that there's no point in voting at all. It was making me really sad. So I reached out and you talked about like that you'd be the one, the Native American calling them out for their privilege. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the 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 ability to abstain from politics is the definition of white of white privilege because you're essentially saying like I know as bad as it gets like the government will never turn on me but as an indigenous person the government has never been on our side as a black person like the government has never been on their side and so I think like it's just that ultimate showing of how sheltered people are and what what I would speak to specifically within the indigenous experience is like right now we've seen unprecedented persecution from this administration um and it's it's been particularly played out in what I would call like continued environmental genocide um and that's the taking of our places our water um for profit by oil companies, mineral extraction companies, whatever it might be. And so right now, as we speak, the the Trump administration is trying to drill for oil in uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which like, if that's not enough of a reason to want to protect it just in the name, wildlife refuge, like, is there nowhere that can be a refuge, but a refuge? Uh, That in and of itself is crazy. But that place to the Gwich'in people, is known as the sacred place where all life begins. And it is where their their sustenance comes from. They live in a place where they cannot, you know, just go to the grocery store and, and get their food at a reasonable price like like most of us have the privilege to do. So they must eat by by hunting the caribou. They must eat by hunting the moose. They must eat by by catching the fish that are in those streams. So if you put oil in those streams if you destroy the place where the caribou reproduce and have for thousands of years th- then you're literally taking away these people's food and water um and, and it's as simple as like the trump administration wants to drill for oil there and joe biden has promised that he won't and it's the same for the pebble mine uh, in bristol bay in alaska and one of my close friends that's where she gets the food who sustains her so you if you're not voting for joe biden you're 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 voting to take the the food off my friend's plate um so it it might seem really simple uh when you look at it that way but people want to make it into this you know thing about oh well he's not exactly what i wanted well guess what he's not exactly what i wanted either and to take it a step further, like I didn't even opt into this whole America thing, (laughs) you know, like we didn't have a choice. I think that's maybe the most important thing when you're considering how to be a good ally to black and indigenous people is remember, like we didn't choose the American dream. We didn't choose to be Americans. We were native before there was America. And, you know, our black relatives were brought here by force and their labor was extracted from them and they were forced to build this country. Yeah, And there's really no way to undo those things. And, you know, that's where our plan should be. But at the very least you can do is take 10 minutes of your time and make sure that this doesn't get demonstrably worse. I mean, I don't know if anyone had watched any of the clips of this Republican National Convention, but it's like it's like straight supervillain shit. Like, it's crazy. And these people, I think the craziest thing is like, these people aren't even in coherence with one another. It's just purely like how much fear and weird, you know, dissonance can they spew? And I think like, you know, Joe Biden isn't a perfect candidate. I've been a Bernie Sanders supporter and volunteer for, you know, two two elections now. And that, that was a, a platform that I resonated with much more. But with that being said, you know, Joe Biden has agreed not to allow the Dakota Access Pipeline to go through the water supply of the reservation that my family is from. Like, you you can't put oil back into the pipeline once it's spilled in the river. You can't uncontaminate a bay after you've allowed strip mining to happen above it. Like, some of these things, like, yeah, we do need to push for, for larger change in the future and, like, you know, 
I, I've been protesting since for my entire life, adult life. You know, under the Obama administration, I was protesting. Um, under the Trump administration, I've been protesting. And I think like it speaks a lot to how new some people are to activism right now that they don't think that you can continue to push for change once there's a a centrist democrat in office it's like yeah you can and we didn't have like an aoc under obama yeah you know like we've continued to push people in this direction regardless and your your choice on whether that happens is is up to you and i'll i'll be there fighting alongside you if you want to keep fighting but the the ultimate decision we need to make right now is like you know there's white supremacist neo-nazis who are actually trying to you know make decisions that will kill indigenous people and will damage the land irreversibly and and that's got to be our first priority has to be putting that that to a stop and we have the opportunity to do that and and it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that and they're putting in a mass effort for you to not do that and like if you don't think voting works then like why are they trying so hard to stop you from voting you know like i I just yeah it all kind of baffles me but i think like it's the simplest way that people can show up and be an ally for sure for sure. So straight out of Connor's mouth. I love, thank you so much for that answer. Um, you spoke so eloquently and uh, I would love to continue to support your leadership. So what is the best way for people to keep in touch and to follow along and to hear more from you? Um, yeah, well, thanks for having me on uh, the podcast today. It's an uh, honor to be able to connect with you and have these conversations and uh, be able to have this shared with your listeners. So really stoked about that. Um, and the best way for you to support what I'm doing is, uh, to, to follow me on Instagram at sacred stoke, uh, as well as natives outdoors, just at natives outdoors. Um, and we're, you know, we're always working on more ways to, uh, bring indigenous people to the table in the outdoor industry and inform and uplift the indigenous voice, uh, through the lens of sport. And we're always really grateful to, to have support there. We are uh, still fundraising for COVID-19 relief for uh, native communities. So if you're looking to, to help out with that, please check that out. It's on our website and our Instagram. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's it. That's all the things. Um, thanks for the opportunity and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, Connor, for taking the time, for sharing all your insight and wisdom with our community here. And I really look forward to continuing these conversations. Have a great day. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to live. Special thanks to Avery Sandak for his help with the audio on today's episode. To my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet while I'm recording in the house today. And to Rising Appalachia for graciously providing the music for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate and review it so other people can find it. Until next time.